thank you for being here this morning. <clears throat> Excited to share God's Word with us and, and, and to continue on where we've left off in the book of Deuteronomy and uh, uh, to, to hear what, what, what's really being said here, what Moses' point in sharing in Deuteronomy 6 and, and with these generations that are coming. And I just, I'm, I love this chapter so much and I'm so thankful that we get the time together to study it. I wanted to tell you this morning um, about one of my future vacation spots that I'm looking forward to. And I, I've never been, never been here, but I'm, I've heard a lot of you talking about it recently. And I really want to go to Murfreesboro to the crater of Diamond's Mind and uh, walk around in the plowed field and look for diamonds. And I... I don't know why this idea is special to me. Well, I, I know a little bit. My, my grandparents, once a year, always went to Murfreesboro. It was something they always did once a year. They went to Murfreesboro, and they didn't take anyone with them. This is something that they did for themselves, and they never found a diamond that I know of, but they always had so much fun doing it. And I don't know if you've seen the pictures. It's not as glamorous as, as it sounds like it will be looking for diamonds. It's like a plowed field and you walk around with a shovel and you look for things in the dirt. Um, they always had so much fun on those trips and going there. And, and when they came back and they told us about it, they, they made the trip itself. It was just a, a fantastic journey that they went on, like this pilgrimage of discovery where they were looking for gemstones and valuable things of the like. And I, uh, I really want to go there. I mean, and my point in bringing it up is that in and of itself, this volcanic crater isn't necessarily valuable. But the trip's valuable to me because, you know, for whatever reason, my, my grandparents made it fantastic. And I want to be a part of that. It's one of the ways that I can uh, remember them. And, and so I'm excited about that. And when I get there, we're going to find stones in the ground. And, you know, in and of themselves, these stones aren't actually valuable, right? What is it that makes them valuable? I bring it up this morning because I want us to think about what makes something valuable. We're going to be talking about the value of our faith this morning. Uh, as we look at with the passage that we've made our way to, we're going to be looking at what makes faith valuable. And what I'm going to assert and what I'm hopefully going to expound from God's word, what we, I, I would like to share with you that I've seen as I've studied, is this message that what makes things valuable is the testing that they endure. So if you can imagine, I go to Murfreesboro and I come back with a diamond and in one hand I have a clump of dirt and I say, what this contains is most likely a diamond. And in the other hand, I have a clump of dirt that's been laboratory tested with a certificate of authenticity that says that this contains a diamond. Reasonably, I can sell the tested diamond for more than I could sell the untested diamond. Like that's, it's reasonable, right? One's been tested. And it's not that it's more valuable. It's not more precious but it's verifiable. I want to talk about testing our faith this morning. Our faith becomes more precious 
with testing. Interestingly, though, the same rule does not apply to God. The creator of the universe doesn't become more precious with testing. I think that's enough introduction. So if you would, let's pray and let's read from God's word. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the privilege that we have to study your word this morning, for the revelation that it is that you've given to us, that you share these insights with us. And God, I pray for our understanding as we study your word. I pray that you would guide us into understanding, into the knowledge of truth, that we would study your word the way that it was originally intended. And it's in the precious name of Jesus I pray and ask this. Amen. We're picking up in verse 16 in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're only looking at one verse this morning. And so if you will, read along with me. The Bible says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massau. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massau. You should be thinking, well, this is one verse. Surely the exposition of this verse will move rather quickly this morning. But I want to go back just a little bit to understanding that this isn't the first time that Israel has been commanded not to test the Lord thy God. This isn't the first time that this commandment's shown up. And for that matter, in the book of Deuteronomy, this is not the first time that we have seen God reiterate through the inspiration of his word, say again, repeat himself, give these commandments another time. In fact, we've talked before that the name Deuteronomy, this book in the Bible, literally means second giving of the law. And the whole purpose of this, the whole purpose behind this is that there is a problem with humanity. We have to be told the same thing over and over again. We are forgetful. And if we're not forgetful, there's something born into us, something wrought with inside of humanity that makes it impossible for us to retain the right perspective that we need to pursue God the way that we are commanded to pursue Him. Everything in Deuteronomy chapter 6, everything in, in God's law points back to, to the, the verse at the beginning that we studied in, in verse 5, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. And we have to be reminded over, of this over and over again. This reference in verse 16 pointing back that we do not test the Lord like Israel had already done at Massau is a reference to the problem that has been evident for generations and generations and will continue to be evident for generations and generations onward. Which is why this is so important for us to get a grip on, to pay attention to. Maybe to remember it. What happened at Massau? If you remember, if going, and I actually do want to go back there, so if you want to head there in your Bible, we'll be reading from Exodus chapter 17 here in a minute. But what's happened before Exodus chapter 17? The Israelite nation was in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and, and we know this story well. God delivered them. 
He sent plagues. He made Pharaoh turn them over and they were freed and they were sent out into the wilderness and then they were pursued by the Egyptian army. And God delivered them again. He parted the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea for them to allow passage away from the Egyptian army. They were um, in, in, in the straits. There was nowhere for them to escape and God made a way for them to escape. He provided where there was a need. When they got to the other side, there was this whole problem. If you keep following the story, there was no water to drink. The water was bitter. And God sweetened the water and made it drinkable. He made it drinkable for them. There was a need and he met it. And then there was no food to eat. And God provided the manna. He made it possible for them to eat. There was a need, and he met it. And we get to Exodus chapter 17. I, I want to read in, in, from verse 4. This instance that's being referenced in our text this morning, this instant at Massau, what happened in Exodus after all of this, after the Red Sea, after Mara, after uh, the manna, what happens? The Bible says, all the congregations of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for the water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of the Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massau and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us? A couple of weeks ago when we were studying just, just a few passages back, a few verses back, we talked about what should happen to our faith when everything's all right. What enduring and maturing in our faith should look like when things are going well for us. Today we get a look at the, the converse of that or what our faith should look like whenever we're struck with difficulty and strife. In this instance, what we find, what happened at Massau, Despite all of the miraculous events, the Red Sea parting. Manna coming down from heaven. That there was a need. That the Israelites had a need. They needed water. Their faith was tested by this need. And it was proved wanting. Because they questioned even if God was in their presence anymore. In retrospect, everything's clear, isn't it? Can you imagine 
God delivering them not one time, but two times, but three times, but four times. God didn't just deliver them out of slavery in Egypt, but He continued to provide for them after their deliverance. God did not just save you in your salvation, but He continues to provide for you in your salvation. And in all of this, we come across a need. And we throw our hands up in the air and we say, is God even with us? Is the same God that has sustained me my entire life, provided me the grace to know Him, is the same God that is here with me now, has He abandoned me in my time of need? Their faith is tested and it's found wanting. They turn around and they test God. They turn around and they test God. To me, it's remarkable to think about this generation that experienced actually being delivered out of Egypt and all of these other things, even being led through the wilderness. What does the Bible say they were led through the wilderness by? The presence of God, which was in a manifest image of a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. That's pretty magnificent, isn't it? That's phenomenal. And even then, their faith was tempted and found wanting. Even this first generation struggled with this. People say that my faith would be stronger if I had something to hang it on. I think they only have to look back at this first generation who had everything to hang their faith on and still did not have faith to know that that is not the case. So what is it that makes our faith valuable? This instance at Massau is significant more than just the moment in that God provided water for the, the Israelite nation through the stones. Another magnificent, phenomenal grace of God. But isn't this the same place where Moses is told that he will not be permitted to enter into the promised land? You don't have to jump there, but if you're interested, you can look at Numbers chapter 20 later this week. After some time has passed of traveling in the wilderness, Moses again finds himself in the same predicament. Now, in Numbers 20, if we were to look at it, what we would find is that the people were not just grumbling, but they were truly rising up against Moses in this instant. And God again provides the same instruction, go to the rock and I will make water come from it. Except in this instance, instead of saying strike the rock, God says speak to the rock. Moses, having done this before for whatever reason, I, I, I can't pretend to understand what was going on in his mind, but dang, Moses, you messed up. Strikes the rock. And the bigger problem wasn't that he struck the rock. It was that instead of giving honor and glory to God as the one who was providing water from this rock at Massau, he was giving honor and glory to himself that he was providing the water as the leader. And God says, 
both to his brother Aaron and to Moses that they would not enter the promised land. He says, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring the community into the land that I give them. The testing that we see from God reveals the fragility of our own reliance upon God. In fact, the main fallen condition that is revealed in this historical account is the hardness of man's heart. It's the hardening of man's heart. And it isn't just a single generation's problem, but it's the same issue that this first generation experienced. It's the same issue that the second generation will experience. It's the same issue our generation is experiencing, and it's the same issue that the next generation will have to come to know for themselves. This morning, as we explore this issue, the testing of God at Massau, the commandment not to test God, but to allow our faith to be tested, I want to look at two things. I am keeping it pretty simple. One, I want to understand the hardness of our hearts. I want to understand the hardening of our hearts. Second, I want to look at the overwhelming amount of grace that God has given, even in this picture, even in response to the hardening of our hearts. And so let's get right in. First, the hardness of man's heart. If we look at Massau, we see a couple of things proven. One is a lack of faith. Even after everything that they'd seen, even after all of this, they test God. Is God even with us? Remember Reagan's policy when working with Russia? Trust, but verify. Remember the whole issue of the, of the arms was... Um, when there were negotiations to cease producing weapons, the Russians insisted on there would be no on-site investigations. No, no one would be coming in and investigating things in person. And the Reagan administration's policy, trust, but verify. We must have on-site investigations. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because really it means that there's not that much trust. There isn't trust. The whole reason for the policy was we did not trust Russia. And I think that was wise. <clears throat> testing on-site investigations, testing when it comes to God means that there is no trust in Him. When the Israelites said, is our God here even among us? What they were really saying was, I do not believe he is here among us. When they went to Moses and they said, Moses, is God even here? Do something, provide water for us. They were saying that they did not trust that God would meet their needs. When we test something, it proves a lack of trust in it. If I handed you a clump of dirt and said that there was a diamond inside of this, you're not going to take my word for it. You're going to test it. You're going to do all that you can to verify it. The second thing proven is a lack of patience. 
God testing our faith is, is actually Him putting us through the school of discipline that our faith might be able to grow more. The hardships or the burdens that we might face is God giving us the opportunity to grow in our faith, to have assurance and a strong faith. He absolutely is providing for the needs, especially of the people here in this narrative in Exodus. And He continues to meet their needs. He continues to meet our needs today. But we have no patience. Things have to come on our time. The people's unwillingness to wait. Their hardened hearts face this difficulty. Ultimately, it's an act of disobedience. I don't know if you noticed, and as we were reading from Exodus chapter 17, one of the things that was pointed out is that the people were supposed to be following the commandment of God. If you think about this, the Ten Commandments hadn't been given to them yet. There is only one commandment, to trust God. That was the only commandment that they had been given at this time. Trust God. But they couldn't do that. Even after everything that they had seen, they could not do that. Our understanding of trials, when when things start to look bleak, is is that we are being tested or that our faith is being tested. and, And all of that is for our benefit. It makes our faith more precious. It gives it more value. But why is it that we can't test God? If our faith becomes more precious whenever it is tested, why does God not become more precious whenever He is tested? The logic falls apart. When we test something that is based on impurity, it becomes more valuable in its refinement. God is holy. Our our understanding of God, our entire doctrinal understanding of God is that He is perfect in creation, that He's all-powerful, that He's all-knowledgeable, that He's completely good, that He's all-perfect. Complete. To test God is to undermine how perfect He is. And, and, and here's what I mean by this. When God demands His glory or His glorification or His honor and His worship, when He calls His people to glorify His name, He does so in the natural order of things, not because He needs worship or because He needs glorification, but because He is so perfect, it's only right that He's glorified. In the testing of God, we run across the same problem that Moses ran up against the second time he was at Massau. We fail to honor and glorify him. We fail to see him as holy. Israel had all the evidence that they need, needed to believe in God's provisions, but it did not help them. They were tested and found wanting. But what does that mean for our faith today? We do not need the phenomenal. 
I would even argue that we have received and seen more phenomenal changes through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which comes as a result of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that we've seen more phenomenal changes than even Israel. When we experience salvation and we see the change, when we look at the story that happens in Exodus and we see the shadow that it has become, that we were delivered from slavery and bondage and sin, that we are able to experience new life and freedom, we can hang our coat up on that. But do we put our faith in the same God that made that change and that transformation possible? The same faith to navigate when things are hard. This picture of the rock. We don't talk about it. Well, I don't talk about it as much as I think I should. The rock becomes a magnificent picture a symbol for the entire nation of Israel of God's presence among them. Moses' song, he sings of the one, who, the one whose rock they are on. If we want to look through the Bible, even in, in Psalms, we can look at how big of a deal the rock becomes. He, the rock of our salvation. It's a symbol of God's presence. You look at Psalm 95, 105, Psalm 81, all of these pictures of the rock and how important it is to Israel that water pours out of this rock, that the symbol of life pours out of God's presence. And you see the way that it develops. It's a bigger picture. It's the assurance of God with his people taking care of them and meeting their needs, his provision. And all of this, by the way, is pointing to his magnificent grace, even in response to the nation's disobedience, in the response to their impatient attitudes, their hardened hearts. God responds by providing their need, by pouring out water from this rock. And if we look at what the New Testament says about this particular image, Paul's understanding as revealed by God is a little bit different. If we look at 1 Corinthians 10, there's this picture that this rock that provides the food that the people need comes from Christ. And so this isn't just a picture of the presence of God with them, but it's the presence of the Messiah, the one who will deliver them. The, the rock the solid foundation. Our God is present even in hard times. The grace of God in providing abundant water in the wilderness. It's magnificent. Israel had all the incredible wonders of the Old Testament that, that we know about as we study today. They, their assurance could have easily pointed to that. Still, they sinned and they disobeyed God by doubting Him. And God, despite this, provides them abundant water to meet their need. Today, we struggle with the same type of doubting because this isn't a single generation's problem. This isn't the nation of Israel's problem. It is a problem of the human condition of sin. And, and when we look at this, we find that God reveals His presence in the circumstances where He appears to be absent. He reveals His presence in the circumstances where even He appears to be absent. He provides for the needs that He has promised to meet. 
even though he doesn't need testing to become intrinsically valuable. Do you see the grace in this picture? The unmerited favor that God has given to his people, that he's continuing to give to his people. I think sometimes it's easy whenever we study historical passages like this not to be able to see how it relates to us. This was something historically that the nation of Israel experienced that's documented. But God's presence is there with them the same way that it is here with us. And it's recorded in history, not just in history, but in the inspired Word of God for the purpose of teaching us and equipping us to be able to navigate this part of life. This is what's incredibly remarkable. I, I talked about the, the incredible signs that we've seen as a New Testament church of new life and everything that we've pointed to. And still, I say that we doubt, that there is a doubt and that there is a testing that we undertake in pursuing God. And there is a doubt. There is a doubt. Because we make, to make decisions until we feel confident that we can pull through on them. What is that doubt? When you visit a church, how do you know that that church is, is, is spirit-led? How do you know that it's God that is driving the instruction of the Word? How do you know that it's the Bible that is being expounded? How do you know that the people are alive for Christ and that they aren't dead in their sin and trespasses, walking around being moralistic people without actually having transformation? If you've ever visited churches, I'm sure you've seen the difference when you've walked into a congregation that is dead and when you've walked into a congregation that is alive. How do you know the difference? I would argue or I'd assert that it is the value of their faith. That their faith has been tested, that it's under, undergone the, the laboratory certification that it's seen trials, that it's been able to see the instances of life where God's presence isn't overwhelmingly clear. And still, the perseverance of that faith allows that people to grow closer to God, to humble themselves so much to the point that when they realize they're not in control of their own lives, that God is pouring out His mercy and His grace for them even when they can't see it. And they're holding on to only one thing, not themselves, but the promises of God. They're looking back at their lives at all of those miraculous, phenomenal moments that they've undergone. The Red Sea, the rock. And they're looking at all of these things and they're saying, God pulled through then. He's going to pull through now. We start to remember these things in our life. And I really pray if you've gone through these that you don't forget, that you would write them down because we forget how big they are. As time passes, we forget how big these moments in our life are. I've got two kids. But it was only three years ago that I thought that I would never be a father. 
What a remarkable moment that God gave me that. And now that I have two kids, it's so easy for me not to see how miraculous and phenomenal that change was. As Michelle and I sat and looked at each other and said, we did not plan for this financially. (laughs) I really thought we were going to be, be able to be just the two of us. What a remarkable gift. How do you know that a congregation is alive? How do you know that a faith is spirit-led? It is by the testimony of that faith being tested. It is by that faith being tested. It's when the church is packed. There's nowhere to grow. And the church commits to growing so that they can, can continue to serve the community. When the church recognizes a need in a community that they maybe don't have the means to meet, but they pursue it anyway and allow God to provide the measure to do that. This isn't just something that happens on an individual level, but it happens on the bigger picture. The people that God has called together, the nation that God is putting together, because we are not a nation of Americans or or any other nation. We are a nation of God. Resident aliens, as Peter puts it. Here visiting. Shall not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massau. We're here to bring glory to God. To worship Him and to honor Him. Testing Him is counterintuitive to that objective. Friends, as I I wrap up, I, I realize that today's sermon, I think, had more historical context than I was really able to bring home in application. But I really want to plea with you this morning. I really want to plea with you this morning. That if you have never come to a place in your life where you have experienced the transformation that happens in Christ, that you would hear the gospel presented. That in the history of all of this, God created the entire heavens and the earth. He created man in his image. He did it because he loved us. And man is a sinner who has a hardened heart. That as a consequence of sin is unable to even see the picture of Christ. Even able to see the grace of God. That is the hardness of our heart is even unable to see God's presence among us when we're following around a pillar of fire. And that that sin separates us from God. There's nothing we can do to get rid of that sin. There's not enough good works that we can apply to cover that up. Because God's demand for us is perfection. It's the only demand He can have because He's perfect. And He affords us His Son. 
who became the perfect sacrifice of perfection when he died on a cross, not just for the sins of one, but for the sins of everyone. That whosoever would believe in him, put their faith in him, would have everlasting life. That new life is available to you this morning. It's available to you every day. But there's a time for all of us when it's not an option anymore. I pray you wouldn't put off putting your faith in Christ. As we respond to this message, we'll have a song of invitation, and that's a time for us to reflect as a congregation together. A time for us to think about what's been said, and a time for the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. And I pray that as we reflect, that we would consider how the Holy Spirit's leading us to respond in faith. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to gather this morning, the opportunity to worship you. God, I pray that you would help us to see the the sacrifice that you made for us. God, I pray that you would help us to see your presence in our lives. God, I pray that you would strengthen and grow our faith. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray.